Dr. Lennox is the president at Kingswood University, which is our Wesleyan ministerial uh, training college in uh, Sussex, New Brunswick. And uh, it is just a great, great honor to have him with us today. Before we begin with a word of prayer and before we dive right into the study of the Psalms, we want to ask, and, and by the way, as folks come in, we have lots of room down on the front rows, as always. Front row seats are uh, at a premium, and yet uh, people avoid them. Uh, we uh, want to know how many of you are going with us after this to lunch at Harvest House, as the fundraiser that Harvest House Ministry, uh, serving those with great need in our city. Uh, how many are going with us to lunch, and then possibly the 5K walk after that? Go ahead and raise your hand so we can get a count, and hold it up until Nathan uh, actually gets a count, because they want to know so that they know how much food to prepare for us today. Joel, can you tell us the timing? Oh, we're, we finish this at noon. We're going to plan on beginning lunch there at 12.30, and then the walk, the 5K walk or 3K walk, begins at 1.00. <coughs> for us. And that is, thank you so much. You, you sure you got all those? Okay. Uh, because they are, a, they are specially accommodating their fundraiser for us because they're doing it at nine o'clock, but we had this booked way back last year before they scheduled their fundraiser at Harvest House. And they so much wanted us to be able to participate that they, uh, they scheduled a special lunch and 5k walk for us and what we're going to be doing in that 5k walk or shorter if you prefer there are other options is getting a tour of the different agencies downtown christian and otherwise that are serving the homeless and addictions and people with great need in our city and on the walk they're going to show us all of those different resources and how harvest house partners with those together and uh, so, and that is by donation. So uh, please don't just come and eat their food and then leave. Uh, the, it is a fundraiser for them. But okay, I think we're ready. Right, Let's right. begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are here today as your servants with great expectation as we hear from you the richness of your word. As we go deep down beneath the surface to see uh, the heart and the context and the language and uh, so much that exists within your word. Uh, Lord, may we be encouraged, may we be challenged, and may this continue to stir up a hunger within us for the depths and the riches of your word, that we might do more than just appreciate it, but that we might apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We do have room down front, too, on the front rows and uh, out on the sides as well. Thank yeah. you. I'll make a deal with you. If you sit on the front row, I won't ask you to answer any questions. How about that? All right. Good. Somebody asked me in the, in the foyer uh, which psalm I would be talking about at, today, and I said, oh, all 150. Well, I've only got three hours, so that gives me 50 psalms an hour. Now, here's the way I want to do this. I want to start with the question, what are the Psalms? Isn't that a good question to start with? And I want to answer it in five different ways. 
So this whole three-hour seminar is going to be built in answering the question, what are the Psalms, and doing it with five different answers. And I think collectively, once we get all those answers together, we'll have a better sense for what we're dealing with with the book of Psalms. Let me say again, questions, questions, questions. Ask those questions. That'll make this a richer time for us all. First, what are the Psalms? They're a book of poems about God. Let's talk about the Psalms as poems. Now, you may be thinking, if they're poems, why don't they rhyme? Well, they do, actually. If you think about rhyming, not as rhyming words, but as rhyming thoughts, the Psalms do rhyme, just like all poetry in the ancient world did. Here's the way they rhyme. They rhyme in what's called parallelism. Don't worry about the... The, the word itself, I'm not going to throw a lot of terms at you, I'm just using that term because within the term you kind of get a sense. Think train tracks, parallel lines. Think about the Psalms as poems and think about the poems as a combination of two lines. And what's said in the first line is often echoed and varied in the second line. So parallelism it's a chief characteristic of the way they wrote poetry in the ancient world, the way the Israelites wrote poetry. The basic definition is we've got two lines, a couplet, and the lines stand in relationship to one another, some relationship with one another. Let's talk about the different kinds of relationships. There's something called synonymous parallelism. What word do you hear in the word synonymous? Synonym. A word that's like another word. It's not the same word, but it's like another word. And so think of these two lines. You have what's stated in the first line, and in the second line, it's repeated in similar but not identical words. So it's saying the same thing in two different ways. That's synonymous parallelism. Now, some of you are real nervous right now because you didn't like English high school. And here you are again. Well, hang on. It's not going to be all about literature, but it, the Psalms are literature. And so the more we understand what kind of literature and the tools that the psalmist was working with, the easier time we're going to have figuring out what God is saying to us through this. Does that make sense? So let's talk about them as literature. Parallelism is the way they wrote poetry. It's rhyming thoughts. And one of the ways they did that is in couplets where the second line repeats in different words, the thought of the first one. Let me give you some examples of this. Take a look at Psalm 135, verse 13. Psalm 135, 13. Go ahead and turn to it. You're going to be turning a lot in the next three hours. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, through all generations. Everybody see that? Psalm 135, 13. Now, what's the synonym for your name that appears in the first line? What's the synonym in the second line? Renown, renown your renown. Now, you may have a different translation. I'm using the, NI, the New International Version. You may have a different translation, but your translation probably represents two synonymous terms, doesn't it? What's synonymous with O Lord in the second line? O Lord, that's easy. What's synonymous with endures forever in the second line? 
See how this works? That's synonymous parallelism. Can you see the train tracks? Okay. Now, in one sense, the psalmist is like a jazz musician. You know what jazz musicians do? They take a, they take a theme and then they riff on that theme. In some sense, the psalmist is kind of like Johann Sebastian Bach. You know what Bach does? He takes a theme and then he develops fugues on the theme. The psalmist will do the same thing. He's got this basic idea of synonymous parallelism, train tracks, and then he has a wide variety of ways that he modifies it. So let me give you some of the modifications. There's something called antithetic parallelism. Now, what word do you hear in the word antithetic? Antonym, antithetical, opposite, anti. So take a look at Psalm 1, verse 6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Do you hear how that second line says the opposite of the first line? First line says the Lord watches over the righteous, but in the second line, we're not talking about the righteous, we're talking about whom? The wicked. And what happens with the wicked? They perish. Instead of the Lord watching over them, they perish. Do you see how the second line is the opposite of the first line? That's antithetical parallelism. Now, you don't get a lot of examples of this in the Psalms. You get a lot more in Proverbs, which is also poetry. So let's jump out of Psalms just for, just for a second and jump into Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. You there? A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son grief to his mother. Do you see the opposite? Now, it's saying the same thing, isn't it? Be a wise son. Be a wise child. But it's saying it using two opposite statements. That's antithetic parallelism. Everybody with me? Questions? Let's look at another variation. Inverted parallelism where the psalmist in two lines says the same thing, but switches the order around. Now this you get a lot in the Psalms. Take a look at Psalm 92, two. Psalmist will do this a lot. Psalm 92, two. I'll start in verse 1. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. But here's the verse I want you to focus on. To proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Now, that looks like it's synonymous parallelism, doesn't it? But it's not. The translators have actually reversed the order to make it synonymous parallelism. Let me give it to you more literally from the Hebrew. This is the way the Hebrew would read it. To tell... You watch your, your translation and see what I do. To tell in the morning your steadfast love and your faithfulness in the nights. I'll read it one more time and watch what the psalmist is doing. 
to tell in the morning your steadfast love and your faithfulness in the night. Do you see how he switched the order? Not if you do. To tell in the morning your steadfast love and your faithfulness in the night. So he's got morning at the beginning of the first line and at the end of the second line. He's got faithfulness at the end of this first line and steadfast love at the beginning of the second. You see it? It's like an X. Now that's a little harder for us as, as English speakers to kind of read. We get lost in the X. And so the translators will almost always switch the order back around to make it look like it's synonymous. But it's just one more of those variations that the psalmist throws at us. Take a look at Psalm 51. I want to show you another variation of this one. Psalm 51, 1. Now, I've been talking about the way things work with two lines, but the psalmist can also do things with four lines. Watch what he does here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So you've got four lines. Everybody see the four lines? Which of the four lines is parallel to line one? In other words, which of the four lines that I've just read for you echoes the thought of the first line? The fourth line, does everybody see that? And do you see what he's done with the two lines in the middle? Those are the lines that are parallel to one another. That's another variation that the psalmist can do with this parallelism. Let me show you another example. It's called incomplete parallelism, and you can figure out why. Because instead of representing every element in the second line that's found in the first line, the psalmist will leave something out, usually leave something out of the second line. And so if you have five words in the first line, there may only be three in the second line. Incomplete parallelism. Let me show you an example. Take a look at Psalm 24.1. Turn to Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. What's missing in that second line that's found in the first line? Is the Lord's. Everybody see that? Ninety-six-three. Read your translation again. And the translator has added the phrase, belongs to him. Because leaving it out does leave the question. It's an incomplete statement, that second line, right? So the translator is trying to help us. Translators are always trying to help us. They're always trying to help us. That's why they reverse the order back to synonymous parallelism from the inverted parallelism. They're just trying to help us. I would suggest... Uh, getting as many tra uh, translations as you can. Well, you can learn Hebrew if you want to. 
But, but if you don't have time for that, then get as many translations as you can. And you can do this easily online with sites like uh, um, Blue Letter Bible or Bible Gateway. You can get all kinds of translations. And then just look at the verse or the psalm in as many different translations as you have time for, and you'll be able to pick up where the translation is trying to help you there. Good, thanks for sharing that. Other questions on what we're talking about here on this incomplete parallelism? Do you see it in 96.3? Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. What's missing in that second line that's there in the first? The verb declare. Let's look at another variation on this basic idea of train tracks. It's called emblematic parallelism. In other words, in the second line, there is a, in the first line, rather, there's a, there's a metaphor, a word picture that we get the specific meaning of in the second line. It's easier if I show you one. Take a look at Psalm 42.1. Anybody know Psalm 42.1? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. The deer in the first line is being compared to what in the second line? Soul. soul. Emblematic parallelism. Let's look at another example. Psalm 58.4. Let's look at verse 8. Psalm 54. Uh, 58.8, let's do that one instead, 58.8. Here's another variation on this emblematic parallelism. Like a slug melting away as it moves along, like a stillborn child, may they not see the sun. We don't get the specific meaning coming out in that second line. We got actually a different emblem, but it's using a, a, a word picture. We'll come back to that. So just another variation. Take a look at um, Psalm 29, 29, 1 and 2 for another variation. This is called staircase parallelism. You'll see why. Listen as I read it. And see if you don't get the sense that with every line, you're going up one step. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So we start out with the statement, ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. We're told what to do and who's to do it. But in the second line, we're told what they're supposed to say. What are you supposed to ascribe or, or credit the Lord with? His glory and strength. In the beginning of verse 2, the first line in verse 2, we're told something specific about his glory. What about his glory? The glory do his name. And then the, the second line there in verse 2 feels like we're getting up to a platform. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. We're climbing. Hence the term staircase parallelism. You see it in the next example, too. Uh, 
Worship, I'm sorry, O Lord, the God who avenges, O God who avenges, shine forth. Do you see how it climbs? No? 94.1? O Lord, the God who avenges, O God who avenges, shine forth. Oh, you're getting ahead of me. She asked, is Psalm 1 something like that except in reverse? And we're going to come to that in just a second. Let me give you one more example of variation, and then we're actually going to go to Psalm 1, and we're going to give you a chance to identify how these lines are working together. The, the last example that I want to focus on is the one that's there in the, about the middle of the slide, intensification. Here is where the second line restates the thought of the first line, but does so by intensifying it or by focusing it. So take a look at the example that I've given to you up there, Psalm 44, 2. Everybody there? 44, 2. Now this is four lines. Here are the four lines. Pay attention to the verbs. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. Which line is parallel to the first line? Second, third, or fourth? Third. Everybody see that? With your hand, you drove out the nations. You crushed the peoples. Do you all see how those two lines are parallel? But look at the verbs. Look at the difference between drove out and crushed. Those are two different actions. And the second action is more intense than the first. Let's say you find you have mice in your house and you scream to your husband to, to drive out the mice. Or do you scream to your husband to crush the mice? Probably not. Because the second is more intense. That's intensification. You see it in the, in the second and fourth lines as well. You planted our fathers and you made our fathers flourish. Think of a garden. It's coming. It's March. It's almost there. Think of your garden. The difference between planting and making flourish. Do you see how that second term takes the first and develops it? Look at another example. This one from Psalm 37, 6. Somebody read this one for us. If you read, you've got to read nice and loud so everybody can hear you. Psalm 37, 6. Read this for, for us. Um, is that 37, 6? You will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Where's the intensification there? Dawn and noonday sun. Can you see that? Now here, the, the uh, translators will, will not obscure this. We just have to learn to look for it. 
You won't find it in every example of parallelism, but you will find it in enough places that you're going to say, wow, I never saw that before, and boy, doesn't that make more sense. So we've got the Psalms as a book of poetry, but it's not poetry like we're used to. It's not rhyming words, but can you see now how it's rhyming thoughts? The repetition of meaning in a second line in a way that varies from the first line? That's a standard element in ancient Near Eastern poetry. If I showed you ancient Egyptian poetry, I could show you parallelism. If I showed you ancient Canaanite poetry, ancient Ugaritic poetry, ancient Babylonian, Mesopotamian poetry, we'd see it there as well. When the ancient Israelite wrote poetry, they used the same literary devices as their neighbors did. Now, the content is very different, but the literary technique is the same. And if parallelism is just a basic stock in trade for an ancient Near Eastern poet. Which means when we read poetry, the, the poetry of the Bible, whether it's in the Psalms or in any one of the other 39 books, there's only three books in the whole Old Testament that don't have some poetry in them. So you're going to find this all throughout the Old Testament. And when you find it, it'll generally be by your translators set off as a, 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 a centered on the page. That's how you know you're dealing with poetry. And you'll be able to see this parallelism in action. But let's do that now. Go to Psalm 1. Everybody go to Psalm 1. And working with a partner or two, unless you're a, a real introvert and you'd rather work by yourself, you have my permission, as another intro, one introvert to another. You can work by yourself if you want to. But I'd love for you to just spend a few minutes asking yourself the question. I've got Psalm 1 with a series of couplets, two lines. How does the second line interact with the first? Don't worry about trying to apply synonymous, antithetic, emblematic, incomplete. Don't worry about that. Just ask the basic question. How does the one line relate to the other? Can you do that for me? I'll give you a couple minutes and then we'll hear what you found.
give you another minute to work on this. Okay, let's hear what you found. Is it possible to find all the, all the different types of parallelism? Um, no. Because I'm not sure we've, we've fully exhausted, not just this morning, but scholars in general are still recognizing that it, they used to think back in the, uh, 1600s, Bishop Loth, who was an Anglican bishop, identified what he thought were the three types of poet parallelism, synonymous, antithetic, and what he called synthetic, which is basically what we've talked about as synonymous, antithetic, and then synthetic. He just took all the other varieties, varieties and put them in one category. Well, that's cheating. And, and basically what's happened ever since among uh, Psalm scholars is an understanding that this, the variation in the antithetic or in the synthetic, is just almost limitless. So I would, I would say the simple answer is probably no. Yeah. Good. So what are the questions or what other things did you discover in this little exercise? Great insight. Did you see that? The first three verses deal with who? The next two verses, four and five, deal with who? And the last verse contrasts the two. Other insights as you compared the way the lines work together. Lots of different kinds, right? Great insight. Did you, he said it's like a, a staircase going the other direction. And it's both the first verse. And it's both the verbs and who's doing the action. Yep. But notice, let's start with the verbs. Blessed is the man who does not walk, stand, sit. Do you notice how with each verb we move to a greater position of permanence. So it's one thing to walk with a wicked person. It's another thing to stand with a wicked person. And it's another thing to sit down with a wicked person. And with each step downward, we are getting increasingly ensconced with the wrong crowd, aren't we? Take a look at the, who's doing the action there. You've got the wicked, the sinners, and the mockers. Now here it's not quite as distinct but I would argue that the difference between the wicked and the sinners and the mockers is clearly a movement in the wrong direction. Wicked and sinners, wicked is what you think it is. Sinners is a kind of general term for a wrongdoer, but mockers is perhaps the worst kind of wicked person that you can imagine in this culture. This is a person who doesn't just do the wrong things, but actually makes fun of people who do the right things. Can you see how that's worse? 
So I'm not sure I can make a sharp distinction between wicked and sinners, but I can clearly make a distinction between those two and the mockers. And just like the verbs, you're going in the wrong direction. So if I put a term on that, which is not all that important, but I'd say staircase parallelism, except it's going in the wrong direction instead of the right direction. What other things did you notice here? Come on. Say it again, Ty. <laughs> Sounds like the people I work with, Ty said. <laughs> Hopefully that's the tree planted by the streams of water. Which... What else did you notice? Just as you, as you asked the question, how do these lines interact with one another? Do you see intensification in verse 2? I do, yeah. It's almost like it's not just um, delighting in the law, but it's talking about what it means to delight in the law, isn't it? It's one thing to say he delights in the law. It's another thing to say he meditates on it day and night. That's how he delights in the law. So I, I would say it's kind of intensification. Yeah, what else do you notice? The, the, it's a very interesting comment that you've made. It's, it's a kind of a question and answer, but you don't have the question. But there is a kind of challenge that comes by the psalmist. He starts with this picture. He says, blessed is, and then it's a negative picture. The person who doesn't do that. And there's a kind of challenge to the reader. Is, what am I like? Where am I? So, good point, good observation. What else did you notice in the, in the parallelism? He explained it, and he explained it using a picture, didn't he? Yeah. Which is where we're going to go next, so I'm glad you said that. Any other thoughts on parallelism? I would encourage you, as you're doing your own Bible study, to pay attention to the literary device of parallelism. I wouldn't spend all your time here, but you'd be amazed at by how a little bit more attention to the way the psalmist put together these poems there is more insight to be drawn from them than what we often imagine. And one way of getting at that is just by asking the question, how does line two relate to line one? Be prepared to be amazed. If there are two things that characterize Hebrew poetry, and one of them is parallelism, which is rhyming thoughts as opposed to rhyming words, the second thing is imagery. And that we're acquainted with. When we think about poetry, when you think about a poem, we think about something that's filled with metaphor, right? That's what characterizes a poem for us, but that's also what characterized a poem for them. They used lots and lots and lots of these kinds of word pictures like trees and chaff. It's filled with that because that's what makes, that's what really evokes the kind of response that a poem is intending to evoke. Now, we're used to imagery, we're used to the metaphors and the word pictures. Let me just point out a couple of things that are unique about the Israelites' poetry and their imagery. One is, 
that they don't need as many words to say the same thing. And fewer words mean more terseness. It's more concise. And if you remember back to the English papers that you wrote in high school or college, your professor probably encouraged you to use fewer words, right? Because wordiness has a way of working against evoking a response. Agreed? I'm, I'm sure that's not the case with Pastor Joel, but you've probably heard sermons where you felt like the pastor could have said the same thing in about a third of the time. I know I've preached those kinds of sermons. Well, how about this? What takes 10 words in one verse in the NIV, the Hebrew can say in four. What takes 16 words in one verse in the NIV, the Hebrew says in seven. What takes 19 words in one verse in the NIV, the Hebrew can say in seven. So one of the things that I'd point out about the imagery in the, uh, in the Psalms and in ancient Near Eastern poetry, ancient Israelite poetry, is because they don't use as many words, the imagery actually hits you harder than it would in the English. Now, we don't have access to the Hebrew unless you're reading it in Hebrew, but just understand that this imagery is a lot more evocative than what you, what it's, the way it's hitting you. Here's the second thing about ancient Israelite poetry, and it has to do with the fact that Hebrew does not have a lot of abstract terms. It has concrete terms that do double duty. So if I'm describing my lifestyle, I use the term derek, that's the Hebrew word, my way of life, derech. But that's also the word that I would use to describe the sidewalk or the highway. To come into the presence of a person, that's an abstract idea, right? To come into the presence of a person. The Hebrew says, by coming before the face of a person. So we sometimes talk about getting in the face of somebody else, and that's a little bit more of an aggressive kind of thing, but that's the way the Hebrew described the more abstract idea of coming into the presence of a person. So what I'm suggesting it is, is Hebrew is loaded to pack a greater punch when it comes to imagery, both by its terseness and by the fact that it's more than likely going to be using a concrete term to express something abstract. Can you see how that strengthens the imagery? Absolutely. She said these relate more to the ancient Israelite because they're things that the ancient Israelite would be acquainted with. And that's absolutely true. We may not be able to get as close to the Hebrew as English speakers, but we can certainly bridge that gap. And if you were part of the seminar that I did upstairs on how to study the Bible, you remember that we talked about that historical and cultural gap and the tools that we can use to get closer to what it, how they heard it and how it struck them. Um, I'm going to share with you a tool. I'll show you the picture. I'll give you the Amazon link <clears throat> for, a, for a Bible dictionary, which is the tool that I'd recommend. But let me just give you an illustration. When I started off, I was talking about the ocean and how the ocean means one thing to us and something, to something, uh, something much more serious to the ancient Israelite. And I think I shared this illustration with you, but a student was writing a report for me on Psalm 46. 
And when he got to Psalm 46, the verse that talks about the ocean, he just began to describe the ocean the way I think about the ocean, which is a very peaceful place. I love to go sit on the beach and watch the waves. And... But that is exactly the opposite of the way the ocean would have impacted the ancient Israelite. So what I would suggest, here's the takeaway, is that as you're reading the Psalms, you're reading literature that is just rich with imagery. But it isn't all going to be imagery that you are acquainted with. The better acquaintance you have with the imagery, the better you can hear it the way they heard it, the easier time you're going to have figuring out what the psalmist is saying. So when the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. How many shepherds in the room? So it's, it's not something that we're acquainted with. The more we understand what it meant to be a shepherd and to have a shepherd, the more that Psalm 23 is just going to resonate with us. But I just say all 150 Psalms have imagery in them of some kind. And the closer we can get to experiencing that imagery the way the ancient Israelite would have experienced that imagery, the more evocative and more powerful it's going to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. But that's why. He, the, the, uh, he was pointing out that the, uh, the passage in Revelation that talks about there being no more sea in the New Jerusalem and how that's not appealing to people like us who enjoy the sea. But now you can understand why. Because one of the things that characterizes heaven, the New Jerusalem, is that there is no more fear. There is no more chaos. That thing that represents to us the thing that we dread the most, the thing that keeps us up, that's exactly the thing that God will make sure is not in our eternal reward. So the, thank you for bringing that up. The closer we can get to the imagery and how it struck them, because that's what poetry is meant to do. It's meant to evoke a response. A picture's worth a thousand words. And a word picture conveys an impression that's intended to produce a response from us. And the closer we can get to figuring out what was intended to be communicated, the better we are at responding the way we're supposed to respond. Make sense? So what are the two elements of Hebrew poetry? Parallelism and imagery. And the Psalms are a book of poems, the subject of which is God. That's the first answer to the question. I want to give you one more literary device. It's not on the level of, of parallelism and imagery, but you do find it in the Psalms, and I just thought I'd point it out to you. It's in Psalm 119, one example of it's in Psalm 119. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 119 before I get to the second point. <clears throat> Other than the fact that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, other than the fact that the 119th Psalm is entirely about the law, the Mosaic law, and how great it is, what's the other thing you notice about Psalm 119? It is an acrostic psalm. Actually, it's a particular kind of acrostic psalm. It's an alphabet acrostic. 
It, it may not be in everyone's Bible, but for many of us, in your Bibles, each eight verses is separated off from one another, right? And the first eight verses have at the beginning of those eight verses a bunch of squiggly lines and perhaps the Hebrew word aleph, A-L-E-P-H. Do you see that in your Bible? Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All of those eight lines in Hebrew begin with a word that begins with aleph. Now what happens when you get to verse 9? Beth, or as it would be pronounced in Hebrew, bait. That's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All of the next eight lines begin with words that begin with the letter bait. And so forth, through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Vav, Zion, Hey, Nit, Yod, Kaf, Lamed, Mem, Nun, Samek, Ayin, Pei, Tzadi, Kof, Resh, Sin, Shin, Tav. All 22 letters, from A to T. Every letter, eight verses, eight times 22, 176. That letter, in Hebrew. Now you can see the translators had a tough decision here, right? Because it would be next to impossible to translate it using all words that begin with the letter A, B. And then what do you do? We've got four more letters in the English alphabet. So you can see the problem for the translators. So they've done their best at representing all 176 verses and then giving you the Hebrew letter and actually giving you the, the English uh, spelling of the Hebrew letter. This isn't the only example of an alphabet acrostic. There are a number of other examples in the Psalms. Let me just give you the references, though we won't take time to turn to them. Uh, Psalms 9 and 10 combined represent the complete alphabet, or most of it, I should say. 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, and 145. And your Bible should tell you when you get to that part that you're dealing with an alphabet acrostic. <clears throat> Not that I know of. There may be. But the question was, is there significance that it's eight verses for each line as opposed to seven or six? And I don't know the reason for that. Great question. Other questions? Why would you suppose the, tran the, the poet would go to the extra trouble of writing a poem as an alphabet acrostic? Because it is a lot harder, by the way. Why would they do that? It does help with memory. Yep. <laughs> it's more fun, she said. Yeah. It's exhaustive. It covers everything. We even use the expression, everything from A to Z. So if you're writing a poem that's describing something and you use an alphabet acrostic, probably one of the things you're trying to convey, not just by the words you use, but even by the literary devices you used, you're trying to convey that whatever we're talking about is comprehensive in scope. The law covers everything you would need to think about. The law covers everything from A to Z. I'm pretty sure that's why the poet in Psalm 119, chose this very elaborate alphabet acrostic. 
He was saying, not just in the words that he's using, but even in the literary devices that he's chosen to employ, listen, when you get a hold of God's law, you've got everything you need. So even the, te the techniques that he employs are part of the message that he's trying to convey. And I would say that overall, before we leave this first point of the Psalms as a book of poems about God, don't miss the fact that a lot of the meaning of the Psalms is actually conveyed in the literary technique that's employed in writing it. So pay attention to that too, not just the words, but the way the words are put together. Make sense? All right, out of English, English class, on to something else. Music class, because the Psalms are songs. Let me just check. No, no hymnals here. We used to have hymnals. Anybody still remember hymnals? Yes. I remember hymnals well. Because when I got bored as a child during sermons, hymnals were a great place to go. You never knew what you were going to find there. Great songs. Like Rescue the Perishing with the song next to it from Greenland's Icy Mountains. You just you never knew where the perishing were, but now we do. They're on Greenland's Icy Mountains. So anyway, so hymnals, hymnals are wonderful things, but we don't have them anymore. We have better things that we're using now. But this was the Psalms was the hymn book for the ancient Israelite. And the songs that they sang, reflected here in the 150 Psalms, were part of their worship in the temple. So we really do have uh, a hymn book. These are poems set to music. Now you're going to figure out what the music is. So I would like, let's see how we're going to do this. I would like, uh, this group right here, you can divide yourself however you want to, you're going to be book one. Remember that. What book are you? One. This group, is going, from here to the aisle, is going to be book two. What book are you? Two. I'm going to be smaller here. Ty, you're over here. Book three. You're, what book? Three. Book Four, so you're in book four. Is that your wife? No. Well, you're, she's in book five. You're not even in the same book. And book five, okay. So you're what book? Five. All right. Now, where am I getting five books? Because the Psalms are divided up into five books. It was done at some point further down the road, but there are five books in the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 to 41 is book 1. Book 1, what are you? Psalms 1 to? Book 2, you are Psalms 42 to 72. Books what? All right, Psalms 42 to 72, book 2. Uh, book 3, you are Psalms 73 to 89. 73 to? Book 4, you are 90 to 106. 90 to? And book five, it's getting weaker as we go east. Uh, book five, 107 to 150. When they divided up the 150 Psalms into five books, we don't know why. We don't know exactly when, although we do know it was much later in the process, probably after the Israelites had come back from exile in Babylon. But you will notice that at the end of every book, there is a doxology, a statement of praise. 
that's not originally part of the psalm, it was added when they divided up the book into five parts. So we're going to do a little exercise here. I've given you your books, and you're going to quickly, quickly, this is like five minutes, you're going to quickly page through the psalms in your book, focusing on the titles in the psalms. Now, not every psalm has a title, but a chunk of them do. Those titles are probably not originally parts of the psalms. They were probably added later. But those titles contain lots of information. And lots of that information has to do with music and worship. And what I want you to do is take a few minutes and look through the titles of the psalms in your book and see if you can notice the terms that are used in your book titles. Does that make sense? Everybody see what you're going to do? Now, you, you may have some psalms that don't have a lot of titles, or don't have a title, I should say. Don't worry about that. Just go on to the next one. All right? Everybody know what they're going to do? Come up with a list of terms that you think probably relate to something having to do with the use of this psalm in worship. Go. Don't let that stop you. Keep going. Find a reference. 
Am I, am I still on? Okay. Not every psalm will have a title, and not every title will have a liturgical term or a musical term, but there are a number of them, and I just want to make sure we see them and, and note them. I'll take another couple minutes on this, minute or so. Finding stuff? All right. Does everybody have at least one that they could share with us? If I called on you, which I won't, relax. But does everybody have at least one? All right, let's, let's go with the ground rule. If you pronounce a word and you're not sure how to pronounce it, here's the rule. Pastor Joel, do you remember me telling you this in school? It doesn't matter how you pronounce it as long as you pronounce it with confidence. So the key here is not getting it right, but saying it with confidence. Because if you say the term with confidence, everybody will think that you're right and they're wrong. <laughs> but even if you say it right with timidity, everybody will assume you've said it wrong. So when you say the word, take a deep breath and just say it however you want to say it. We won't know the difference. All right? Who wants to go first? Give me a term or an expression or a phrase that you found here, there that you think is a liturgical or musical term. We'll talk about it briefly and go on to the next one. Miskal. Anybody find that one? It's, it, it's a word, maskil is a word that means uh, we're not sure. That's why it's still written in Hebrew. Now, it's not literally in Hebrew. It's using English letters. But it's basically taking a Hebrew word and not translating it, but transliterating it, which is just to spell in English letters a Hebrew word. And they do that when they don't know what else to do with it. If they know the meaning of it, they'll give you the meaning. If they don't know the meaning, they'll just give you the Hebrew word spelled in English letters. You tracking with me? So when you read something like maskil or shigayon or higayon or miktam, it means we don't know what it means. It may, it is a musical term, and it may mean a poem that has to do with teaching, or it may mean something to do with meditation. 
like meditating these words, we're not sure. But it is a musical term. It's some kind of musical or liturgical term. Give me another one. Uh, I wouldn't put that in the category of musical terms, although it's very important for what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, but thank you. Interlude. Anybody else's translation have that? Anybody's translation have Selah? S-E-L-A-H? Any idea why they translate it S-E-L-A-H? Because they don't know what it means. The New Living Translation is the first translation that I've seen in a long time that assumes it knows the meaning of the word and always translates it interlude. You using the, the New Living Translation? Yeah. Most other translations will, will acknowledge, we're not sure what this means. It could mean interlude. It could mean sing louder. It could mean pause. But the word sila, it, it shows up 70 or 71 times in the Psalms. Yeah, so how many of you found titles that have something like to the, sing to the tune of? And then there's some phrase like uh, to, do not destroy or death of a son. I'm not sure I want to hear that song. Anyway, some of us that are older will remember that in our hymnals it was possible to sing the same words to multiple tunes. This is the same example as we have here. Same kind of things happening here. These words could be sung to different tunes. It's just telling you what tune to use to sing it with. Now, we have no idea what that tune was. All we know is the title. Lilies. Death of a Son. Shashanam, yeah. <laughs> Lilies. We think. Yeah, right. <laughs> What other terms did you run across? Alamote. The O-T-H ending means feminine plural. And that's about as much as we can get. It could mean hidden things. It could mean that this, song is to be, this psalm is to be sung by female voices because they did have choirs. They were, Israelites were famous for their musicians and their choirs and their singing. We know that from out, sources outside the Bible. So it could be this is a, a choir of women, maidens. Other terms? Mahala? Psalm 53, Psalm 88. Mm -hmm. Here again, not sure, possibly referencing a flute because the word for flute is similar to that term, so it possibly is describing what instruments would be used. They did have all kinds of instruments, drums and cymbals and um, trumpets and ram's horns and all kinds of musical instruments, all kinds of stringed instruments, harps, lyres. So it could be indicating what's supposed to be used to accompany this. I heard something up here. Giddeth. Yeah, um, the term giddeth, Eight, Psalm 8, it also shows up in Psalm 81 and Psalm 84. We're not sure what this is. Possibly a musical instrument. Possibly a song title. 
like for the death of a son? Because a getit is a, a wine press. And so some have suggested this is a song title for the wine press. Some have suggested that this has something to do with moving the Ark of the Covenant in David's day from the private residence where it was placed into the tent where David had to put it. Because if you remember, it was placed in the home of a Gittite. And some have suggested that there may be some historical reference here that this is the song, one of the songs that was sung on that occasion. Speculation, we don't know. Let's take time for one or two more. Miktam, no, we didn't say that yet, but that's another one of those terms. We're not sure exactly what it means, but it's a kind of psalm. I think that one has to do with prayer is one of the suggestions. Basically, what we're left doing in places like that where we have a term that we think describes the type of psalm is we look at the content of the psalm, and if it's more of a teaching psalm, then we assume that that's what masculine means. If we look at, if it's more of a, a, an expression where there's a lot of emphasis on prayer, then we think that's what that term means. But if we knew, we would translate it. <laughs> Otherwise, we transliterate it. Good. Yes, some of them are call, called psalms, and we'll talk more about that term here uh, in a little bit. At what point might we assume some of the meaning of those terms was lost? <clears throat> the question is, at what point would we assume that the meaning of those terms was lost? That is to say, somebody at one time knew what a miktam was. When did they lose that meaning? Apparently, it was, it was early enough that when it came time to give us the book of Psalms in the, in the fashion that we have it, in the form that we have it. That's probably sometime after the Jews returned from exile. So sometime between when that term was first used and when the Psalms were combined, the meaning was lost. It's lost by the time of the Septuagint. Yes, it's lost by the time we have it translated from Hebrew into uh, Greek, let alone into English. So it was lost early on. Song of Ascents, there are 20, 21 psalms starting in 120 and going through 131, I think, 130, yeah, 131. Here are the three basic options for what that means. Or two basic options, I should say. Um, those are all psalms that seem to have the idea of going on pilgrimage. So the psalm, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. There are other psalms in those, in those 21 psalms that seem to have this idea of going on pilgrimage. And so the idea of the songs of ascents is that this is a collection of psalms that was used by pilgrims who were going on pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. Remember, all Jewish men had to go to Jerusalem from wherever they lived in the land. They had to go there three times a year for a festival. And so they'd go as pilgrims. Oftentimes whole families would go. And one of the, one of the theories about songs of ascent is that those are the songs, it was, a, it was a song book or a collection of songs that were used that the, song, the pilgrims would sing on their way up to Jerusalem. No matter where you lived in Israel, you always ascended to Jerusalem because you always had to climb Mount Zion to get there. Plus there was the idea that you were going to the high place in Israelites' existence where the temple was, so you would ascend. That's one explanation. That's the one I like the most. Another explanation that I've heard is that there are, I'm sorry, the 15 of these psalms, 
and there were 15 steps in the temple of Jesus' day, and that these psalms were sung one step at a time. I don't like that as much because we don't know what Solomon's temple or the second temple was like, so we don't know that there were 15 steps. Just because there were 15 steps in the temple that Herod built doesn't make any sense. These are Old Testament psalms, not New Testament. So, I like the idea that these are songs that were sung by pilgrims who were on their way up to Jerusalem in one of those pilgrimages. Yes, the sons of Korah apparently was a group of individuals related to this man Korah. They're probably not just sons, but that term Ben could mean son, grandson, descendant, distant descendant. But they were associated with this Korah and they were probably musicians that were involved in temple worship. This is the kind of thing you passed on from... from there was a different Korah then. There's a Korah that David designates in when he sets up the temple worship on behalf of his son Solomon. And he designates Korah, I believe, and, and a few others. And so apparently there was, a, there was a, um, a guild, if you will, a guild of musicians associated with the temple. And ha they had psalms that were associated with them. Either they wrote them or they collected them, we're not sure. Uh, but there are some of these terms which, are, which refer to musicians, Korah, Ethan the Ezraite, and so forth. So some of the terms you ran across were names, names of people associated with the temple. Any questions on this second point, that these are songs used in worship in the Jewish temple in the Old Testament period? All right, we're just about ready to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the third way of answering this question. What is the Psalms? The Psalms, the book of Psalms, is a collection of collections of poems. It's a collection of collections, and we'll talk about that. We've actually already started. Any questions before we take a break? We've got just a minute or two here. Yes, sir. Yeah, the question is, you know, what would we compare like a Korah or an Ethan or an Asaph? What would we compare somebody like that to today? Um, well, as it relates to Moncton Wesleyan, these would be the sons of Mark. How does that, how does that feel, Mark? You like that? You've, you, sons and daughters, you're right. We've got to be, uh, yeah. So probably not... For, for our context, but if we would look back at the history of the church, there were individuals that were associated with the church who, whose, whose calling was to provide music for the church. When one of those names would be J.S. Bach. And much of the material that he produced, he produced for, the, uh, for worship. So it could be somewhere between Mark Jolliker and J.S. Bach. I understand they're really close together, but, but somewhere in there. Yeah, great question. Let's take a break. Let's take 10 minutes. Can we do that? Wait a second. We have, we have instructions here, and it has to do with food, so I know you'll want to pay attention. Are you guys enjoying this? Isn't this good? Okay, let's start with uh, questions while folks are coming in. Nothing like sugar and coffee to get the mind going to think of the questions that you meant to ask. 
Let's start with questions. The question is, uh, these uh, cursing psalms or psalms of uh, praying for judgment on the enemies, uh, we are going to get to that and spend a few minutes on that uh, in the time remaining. Thanks. Yeah, other questions from this morning so far? Other questions? I'd love to. Do you mind if I put this up here? Pastor Joel asked if I would come back and teach on, on Leviticus. I would love to. I would, I would love to. When I read Leviticus, I get excited. And I know that sounds crazy, but I figured out some things about Leviticus that I was shown, I should say, I was shown things about Leviticus that allow me to read that and see what God is saying to me through it. I would love, I would love to have that opportunity. Yeah, great question. Uh, we know that originally... Israel was an oral culture, A-U-R-A-L. They listened, they heard, and so they were an oral, O-R-A-L culture, before they were a written culture. Actually, that continues up through the Roman period. Listen to me, because I want you to hear this. In Jesus' day, a spoken message was regarded as more trustworthy than a written message. That's the exact opposite for us, right? If we want to get something for sure, we say put it in opposite. Why? Because they understood that the authority and reliability of a message was directly connected to the messenger. And so to hear that message communicated orally was to have it not only what was said, but who was communicating it. So we have to say that for the ancient Israelites, the fact that they always valued the spoken word, but at some point, they began to write things down. And I would say they probably wrote some things down early on. I would say that some of what God delivers to Moses on Mount Sinai, we know that Moses wrote down. We know that other stuff, he continues to, it continues to be an oral culture. Yes, the observation of Psalm 119 would be impressive if it, were, if it were spoken from memory. But I would say, and I don't know if we have any um, First Nation people here, but a culture like a First Nations culture is much more capable of retaining vast troves of material by memory. So we've, we've allowed our memories to atrophy. No matter what your age is, we have a culture have allowed our memories to atrophy just through lack of use. So I wouldn't be surprised if somebody could memorize all of Psalm 119. What was it you were telling me about your mom? Yeah, she memorized the entire book of Psalms. Oh, how I wish I had done that. Yeah, another comment or question? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think these, uh, much of what we have in the Old Testament and probably much of what we have in the New Testament, at least in the Gospels, was originally orally presented. In fact, if we could jump to the New Testament, the four Gospels that we have are not the first books written in the New Testament. The earliest books written in the New Testament would be the letters. Because originally it was more important to have the gospel material, the stories about Jesus, communicated orally by eyewitnesses. And only when those eyewitnesses began to die in about the mid part of the first century, 10, 15, 20 years after Jesus uh, resurrected, at that point they start to write down the Gospels. So the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, they're not the first books written. Yes, Henri. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, great question. Uh, for those of you who didn't hear the question, it's uh, why didn't they write things down sooner? Why did they trust their memories? I think there was at least two reasons. One is the one I've mentioned a minute ago, is they actually valued the spoken message before the written message. They actually considered the spoken message to be more authoritative, more powerful than the written message. And so in their minds, they were preserving the material in the best way possible by word of mouth. But I think there's a second reason, and that is that they had Jesus' word, Jesus' promise, that the Holy Spirit would help them to remember what they needed to remember. Remember when Jesus says to the disciples, when, you, when you're called up before the authorities, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit will give you the words. And as Jesus is preparing to say goodbye to his disciples, he says the, the Spirit's job is to take from what is mine and give it to you. So they had the confidence that they were, they were communicating this message in partnership with the Holy Spirit who would bring to mind those things. So, Great question, though, Henry. The question, is it possible, the Gospels, is it possible that the Gospels were written down earlier and we just haven't found them? It's unlikely, but it is possible. What we do know is that the written material that we do have has, has been produced in part from the memory of those who heard it, who saw it originally and then passed it on to others. So oral tradition is part of what was used to in, in the writing down of the Gospels, but there were also some written sources. Not, not earlier Gospels, but collections perhaps of sayings of Jesus, or perhaps certain stories. And that's why the, the four Gospels that we have are so similar to one another in so many respects, even word-for-word -word similarity, which is striking for Greek, but also different from one another. You somehow have to account for the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three in particular, 
say things in such, way, in, in such similar ways, and yet each of them have their own unique spin on it. And the best explanation is that they all perhaps were using some common oral sources and some common written sources, and then their own uh, perspective under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Great question. People like Dan Brown and others make millions speculating that there's some secret that Christians are being kept from and that the truly enlightened can see like the Wizard of Oz can peek behind the curtain and see that this is just a, you know, a magician from Kansas. But the, the likelihood of any kind of thing like that actually being true, that there's some kind of secret and hidden, it's, it's next to nothing. The fact is that the, the early Christians were so committed to the message that they knew to be true. They knew it experientially to be true. They knew from whom they had heard it and that it was a trustworthy message, and they were willing to die for it. And you don't die for a, a lie. So their, their willingness to go to the, to the lions for the sake of the truth about Jesus Christ is confirmation enough, I think, Other questions about the Psalms or anything? I think that the question is, did they pass things down orally, both in the Old and New Testaments, because not everybody read? I think that's an excellent insight. The literacy rates in the Old and New Testament which would have been well below uh, where they would be in Canada today. So certainly, uh, oral is the only way for some people. That's actually why in, in the churches in the early Middle Ages and the Middle Ages, uh, why, why the whole stained glass phenomenon takes place is because these are illiterate people. They're coming into church and they can actually learn the stories of the Bible by looking at the glass and, uh, and learning it that way. So even up through the Middle Ages and into the Enlightenment period, literacy rates are going to be woefully abysmal. So have to find some way to communicate it. Song is another, yeah, song. Yes. Hmm. Question is um, from the sister's uh, background as a, a former Hindu that only certain people were allowed access to the sacred Hindu texts, and, uh, and they were the ones that communicated with others, and was that the case with ancient Hebrew? And uh, to my knowledge, it would, it would not have been that, ca that case. The priests were responsible to teach the law. That is one of their stated responsibilities. But there was no sense that the priests alone would have this hidden knowledge that they communicated. Someone was asking me earlier about numerology, you know, kind of hidden meanings with numbers and all of that. And uh, is it possible that that's there in the Bible? Um, some kind of secret code in the Bible? Have you heard about this kind of thing? And here again, this runs totally counter to everything that God does. Here we have a God who is so passionate about being known that he shows up in person, in the person of Christ, and allows himself to be crucified. Now, if you have a God that's that passionate about being known, is it at all conceivable 
that he would then go to lengths to hide his message in some way? So I think it's part of our DNA as, as Christians to, to be upfront and open and, and make the message as widely known as possible. This is why, and I don't want to offend anybody, but this is why I, I, I strongly oppose the idea of fastening on one particular translation of the Bible to the exclusion of all others. It's often said that with the King James Version, you know, it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. But that same tendency to grab a hold of a translation and refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of others is not unique to the King James. When there was an effort made back in the 90s to 90s, early, early 2000s, to translate the New International Version and update it, there was this great hue and cry and, and no, we can't possibly do that in the direction that you're talking about. And, and I thought, okay, it isn't just King James only, it's New International Version only for some people. So the same phenomenon that, that, it, that causes us to latch on to some translation as if it's the only way God could speak. Do you see how that runs completely contrary to the DNA of the believer? We serve a God that cares enough about being known that he actually comes down and becomes one of us. But there's a sense where the Psalms themselves incarnate God's message for us. Remember what I said, that the Psalms are written to evoke a response. Now think about this. The Psalms are rich with theology. Rich with theology. And we'll talk about that before we're done. But God is concerned not merely to be known as some kind of theological object. He wants to be known in a sense that people respond to him. God has the capacity to reveal himself so that we would intellectually know who he is. Agreed? But God in the Psalms, and I would argue throughout the scriptures, but especially in the Psalms, God's keen objective is not merely to be known as a fact, but to be related to as a person. He evokes a response. He chooses to picture himself, even if the pictures could be misunderstood. A picture's worth a thousand words, but a picture can be misunderstood. So it's as if God is given the, the choice between representing himself as he literally is, or God representing himself in a picture that will evo evoke a response. If he represents himself as he literally is, the opportunity for us to misunderstand him is minimized. If he represents himself in a picture which evokes a response, the opportunity for misunderstanding is present. Agreed? Which does he choose? The picture. What does that tell you about God? He wants to know you. He doesn't want to just be known by you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him, not just as a fact, but as a person. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants you to respond to him as a person in praise. Not just to know him as a fact. And so the idea that God would somehow reveal himself in a way that only the illuminated could get. And the rest of us ignoramuses, we would be dependent on them. That runs totally counter to the nature of God. As a God who wants to not only be known, but known in such a way that we can respond to him. Does that make sense? No. Nope.
there's absolutely no question, you're absolutely right, that the access to the written word for the ancient Israelite was minimal. And so that does place greater responsibility on the, the person who has access to the written word, the priest. But there was also the responsibility of the individual Israelite to hide God's word in his or her heart. Your word have I hidden in my heart. That's not a priest talking. That's an ordinary Israelite in all likelihood. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So there's a sense where, yes, there is a teaching ministry. And I would argue that's still present today. When I was a pastor years ago, I found myself doing, trying to do everything. We were a church of about 160, and I was trying to do everything. I was trying to be at every meeting. I was trying to be at every home. I was trying to be in the hospital. I was trying to do everything. And needless to say, I wasn't doing anything very well. And I remember distinctly in my study of the book of Acts one day that God made very clear to me that as a pastor, there are two things that I have responsibility to do. Teaching of the word and prayer. Remember the apostles, they appointed the deacons so that they could devote themselves to the word and prayer. And it was as if God said to me, Steve, I want you to do the two things that the rest of your congregation does not have the wherewithal to do. They don't have the liberty that you do to spend hours in the word. They don't have the liberty that you do to devote themselves to prayer the way I, they need to be prayed for. They need a shepherd who's going to teach them the word and he's going to pray for them. Do those things. Figure out a way to get the other things done, get other people to do it. But don't neglect those two things because they matter the most. And so for me, the responsibility of, of a teaching ministry has always, I, I really feel like that's crucial. And I, I believe you are blessed in who you have as a pastor. Your teaching ministry, and this, I think that characterized your ministry for years, not just here. But you, you, you have always been a hungry, hungry student of the word. And I knew our blessed people because the guy who has the time and the resources and the training to do that. So in a sense, we're, it's not an either or. It's not like we either all have access to it or, or there's one Illuminati that has access to it. The way God designed it is a sense of responsibility. It's like, like a parent with children. Other questions? Great question. What about the Apocrypha? Those would be the books that, were, that are present in the Roman Catholic Bible, but not in most Protestant Bibles. Um, those are books that were written in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What we as Protestants tend to call the silent years, but they weren't silent. They were very, very active. And there was a strong Judaism that was going on during that time period. And God was continuing to speak to people during that time period, just as he does today. There were certain books that were written down that were collected by the Jewish community and were treasured by the Jewish community, but very few in the Jewish community would have considered those apocryphal books to be equal in significance to the books, the 39 books that we know from the Old Testament. But they treasured them. And much like we do with books like Pilgrim's Progress or, or Chronicles of Narnia or, or other books that we have found to be really blessing to us. But nobody would say, you know, put Martin Luther King's letter, to, letter from a Birmingham jail, put that in the New Testament, although people have said that, but it's, it's kind of silly, isn't it? But do we read Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail as something that is significant and defining for us? Well, we should. 
It's a great statement on, on uh, the place of, of, of unity among brothers and sisters, regardless of race. I recommend it, but I don't recommend you put it in your Bible. So that's the situation that we had. We have the Old Testament books and then these apocryphal books. Well, then the New Testament books come to be written, and the early church adopts the Old Testament books from the Jews as their Old Testament, and they have their New Testament books. What do they do about the apocryphal book? Well, they did the same thing that the Jews before them did. They treated those books as valuable, but not on the same level as Scripture. Well, what happened was, in, in the first few centuries of the church, as the church spreads across the Roman world, Latin, which is the language of the Roman Empire, is the, the language that people spoke, not Hebrew, and less Greek. So they translate the Bible. Jerome translates the Bible into Latin. He does with those books what everybody else had done. He includes them, but without, being, without committing himself that they're on the same level as the other 66. <clears throat> and that's the way things go up until the 1500s when the Protestants uh, revolt against what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church, what we call the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther and others objected to the apocryphal books being regarded as on the same level as Scripture. And they take the step of saying, once and for all, let's settle the fact that they are not on the same level as the 66 books of Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church, in response to the, to the Protestant Reformation in the Council of Trent in 1546, said, oh, yes, they are. And that's the reason why you have these books that are present in the Roman Catholic Bible and missing from Protestant Bibles. Are they books that which, are they books which Protestants should read? I, I think so. I found them very helpful. I don't treat them at the, at the same level as being inspired as the other 66 books, but they're very illuminating for what God was up to and what, the, what was happening for the Jews. Um, it's certainly not a point where I would want to make any kind of fuss with somebody who viewed them differently. If, if, if somebody, a brother in Christ said to me, no, those, the book of Esdras or, or uh, Maccabees, that's in the Bible, you ought to treat, you ought to, okay, yeah, can we just agree to disagree? It's great stuff, but I, that's not the way I see it. I would not want to create any kind of dissension with a brother Christian who might view that differently. Does that make sense? Absolutely. One time I shared an illustration in my church, the same church, one time I shared an illustration from, um, the apocryphal books, and I facetiously said, now I checked with the general superintendents, and they said it's okay for me to use this book. Nobody, nobody got the joke then either, so it's all right. <laughs> hey, let's jump back into the Psalms, shall we? We've said that the, the, the Psalms are a um, book of poems about God. They're songs used in worship in the first and second temples. Are you clear what I mean by first and second temples? Who, who built the first temple? Solomon, Solomon, around the year 950 or so, 950 BC. What happened to that temple? It was destroyed. By whom? The Babylonians in the year 586. So the first temple, Solomon's temple, lasts for almost 400 years. From 586 to 538, there's no temple, just ruins. This is in Jerusalem. When the Jews come back from exile in 538, they begin to build the temple, and then they got busy about other things, and they got opposition, and they quit building the temple, and a couple of prophets arose by the name of Haggai and Zechariah, and, uh, I'm sorry, not Haggai, um, 
yes, Haggai and Zechariah, and said, hey, God wants us to build the temple. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things will be added to you as well. And so they begin to rebuild the temple, and they get the temple finished at about 520. That's the second temple. Everybody listening to me? There only have been two temples. Solomon's temple and the one that was rebuilt in 520. What a... What? No. But I'll get to that. What happens is that when, in the New Testament period, King Herod, as a way of drumming up support among the Jews, because he was not a pure Jew, as a way of drumming up support among the Jews of his day, he remodels this second temple and makes it something grandiose. This is the temple that Jesus comes to. This temple's no longer there. What happened to it? It was destroyed in the year A.D. 70 by the Romans. So only ever two temples. The first temple built by Solomon, destroyed by the Babylonians. The second temple rebuilt by the Jews around 520, remodeled by Herod. It's that temple to which Jesus comes. So in Haggai, when he says, by inspiration from God, you see this temple? It's puny compared to Solomon's temple. But the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. And I'm sure the people there were saying, how could that be? Little did they realize that God himself shows up in flesh and walks into that second temple. That temple is destroyed. What's there now? Mosque. Actually, there's two mosques. There's the gray mosque and then there's the Dome of the Rock. Two sacred sites for the Muslims. All that's left of the second temple is a retaining wall that was built by Herod because he expanded the whole platform. And we know that as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. That's all that's left of the second temple. Questions? If you want to go see the Wailing Wall, mark your calendar for May 2020. I'm taking a trip and leading a trip there, and I'd happily have you come along. More to come. All right. Number three, the book of Psalms is a collection of collections of poems. Now, if I say this, I've got to start by asking who wrote the Psalms, and the answer is David, probably, and a bunch of other people. Turn to Psalm 11. Those folks in book one saw this already, but probably most of you saw a place in the Psalm titles which reads like you see in Psalm 11, of David. That's one word in Hebrew, le David, there it is. You read Hebrew from right to left instead of left to right. So you see the letter that looks like um, an umbrella or something without the top? All the, all the way over on the right, that's the preposition of, or to, or for, or from, or by, or belonging to. As you would expect, prepositions can mean lots of things, and how do we decide what a preposition means? Context. Except all we have for context is le David. David, of course, is the name David. So most translators will treat this as of David. 
And this, this Luh David shows up about 72 times in psalm titles. Now, most, the, the most commonly accepted way of explaining this is that these are psalms that were written by David. But that isn't the only way to understand this. As I've illustrated, the phrase could mean collected by David, dedicated to David, about David, for David. Lots of options here. On the other hand, there are places in the New Testament which speak of these psalms as written by David. We know that David had a reputation for being a musician and a poet, so there's no reason that this can't mean written by, but we can't say with 100% certainty that all the psalms that say Le David were written by David. We know that he didn't write all 150 psalms because there are other names associated with it. And there are some places where there are no names associated with it. So when we talk about the Psalms as a collection of the collections, we don't know exactly who wrote all of them. We assume that David's responsible for the ones that bear his name, but we can't say that for, for sure, 100%. Now, there are 13 Psalms, and you notice this in your quick read through those titles. There are 13 Psalms which contain some kind of historical reference to David's life. Did you notice those? Like when he escaped from Saul or when God rescued him from his enemies. You'll notice that that's not in the first person. David's not saying, this is the psalm I wrote when I was. These are psalm titles that were added later. Did they arise from that episode? Possibly. Were they written by someone else who saw the circumstances of David's deliverance in that psalm and attached those historical titles to it? We don't know. Let's not be dogmatic about what we don't know. There's no virtue in aimless dogmatism. You can tweet that. <laughs> yes, there are, that's a great, great point. Uh, there are several of these psalms which we actually find in First and Second Samuel that's associated with David. So there's no problem in seeing David as the author of, this, of the material that bears his name, at least in those instances. At least I don't have any problem with that. Could well be. Other questions? I mentioned these are a collection of collections, and we've already, talked, we've already begun to talk about some of the smaller collections that go into the larger collection. We have a big 150-psalm collection, but we've already identified several smaller collections within that big 150, right? Like the Songs of Ascent. 15 psalms, small collection. They still even have the title, Songs of Ascent. Collection of Collections. What was it you were pointing out to me, somebody here, the Psalm 72? Was that, we were talking, the three of us there? Well, somebody in this line right here, they're not owning up to it. Or maybe I imagined this conversation, I don't know. But if you look at Psalm 72, the very end of Psalm 72, just take a minute, quickly turn there. What's verse 20 read? Somebody, nice and loud. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Doesn't that suggest that all the psalms that are associated with David would be done by the time we get here? And they're not. So the best explanation is that there was a collection of songs of David, the last of which was Psalm 72, and then there were other psalms of David 
that weren't in that collection, which were added later. Collection of collections. Make sense? We saw the songs of Korah. We saw the songs of Asaph. Smaller collections. So somebody at some point, probably after the Jews got back from exile, took these collections and put them together in the order that we have them. The five book structure. And they kept these, these specific collections. Many times uh, kept the names in there. Did you know that different books of the Psalms, book one, two, three, four, and five, actually, in many cases, you can find that a certain book of the Psalm, let's say book two, prefers to refer God to refer to God in a, by a certain name. So that book two prefers to refer to God as Elohim. Whereas book one and book three prefer to refer to God as Yahweh. So if you actually count up the number of times Elohim is used, it's way higher in book two than it is in either book one or book three. Here's, a, here's an interesting uh, example of that. Take a look at Psalm 14. Psalm 14, now keep your finger in Psalm 14 and turn over to Psalm 53. Look at verse 2. Psalm 14, 2. Look at Psalm 53, verse 2. What do you notice? Psalm 14, which is in book 1, uses Lord, all capital letters, right? L-O-R-D, all capital letters. What does that mean? When, when a translation, and I don't know of any translation that doesn't do this, when a translation uses Lord in all capital letters, it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. Some people translate or pronounce it Jehovah, but Yahweh is the right uh, pronunciation. So when you see Lord in all capital letters, you know that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. So Psalm 14.2 refers to Yahweh. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the sons of men. Now look at 53.2. God, Elohim, looks down on the sons of men. It's clearly the same psalm that's appearing in both books. But what did we say? So book one prefers to use Yahweh, and book two prefers to use Elohim. So at some point, these different books had even a life of their own. Collection of collections. Questions? All right, here's my fourth answer to the question, what is the book of Psalms? The book of Psalms is a book of praises. Somebody mentioned the word psalm. The, the word psalm translates the Hebrew word for praise. The Hebrew name for the book of Psalms 
is Sefer, which means book of, Sefer Tehillim. Tehillim, book of praises. If you heard the word halal or hallelujah in that second word, Tehillim, it's the word praise. This is a book of praises. Now here we have a problem. Because when you and I use the term praises, we like to think of it as my brother-in-law says, happy clappy. Okay, so if I'm praising, then I'm upbeat, you know, yeah, right? If I'm, if I'm not that way, then I'm not praising. W would that be a, a fair representation, at least of the way we tend to use the word praise? Okay, we got a problem. Because a big chunk of the Psalms is not happy clappy. A big chunk of the Psalms is not happy clappy. Yeah, there's some happy clappy. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, Psalm 103. That's happy clappy. I would even grant that the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. We could even squeeze that into happy clappy. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. That's happy clappy. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not happy clappy, but that's in the Psalms. That's in the Sefer Tehillim. That's in the book of praises. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. It's not really happy clappy. It's in the Psalms. So, either one of two things is wrong. Either they've mistitled the book of Psalms, or we misunderstood what a praise is. I'm going to go with option B. Apparently, they understood something different by praise than we do. And it's probably worth our thinking about. Apparently, it's possible to praise God even when you're not happy-clappy. Let's talk about those complaint psalms those lament psalms like psalm 22 go ahead and turn to it if you want to they tend to all be pretty similar they start off with a call for help like verses one and two my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me so far from the words of my groaning oh my god i cry out by day but you don't answer by night and am not silent the call for help and then those laments or complaints often go on to uh, a, a description of the problem that the psalmist finds himself in, and we have that basically in 3 through 21. They may conclude with some kind of an expression of God answering their prayer, like we have in 22 to 31, but they don't always. Some, some of these lament complaint psalms end with complaint. Sometimes those complaint psalms are expressions of an individual. There's first-person singular language used, and other times it's, it's first-person plural language used, almost like a whole community can be complaining to God. Some, some of the complaints are addressed to God about other people. So you find reference to enemies. 
some of those complaints are addressed to God about the psalmist himself. He's actually complaining to God about himself. But there are some of those psalms where the psalmist is complaining to God about God. And that's so far from happy clappy, I don't know what to do with it. But it's a form of praise. Now how on earth can complaining to God be a form of praise? Especially when you're complaining of, to God about God. You're still talking to him. You're recognizing his authority. Boy, we are on the right track. You picked this up a lot faster than I thought you would. Who else would you complain to? He still loves you. That's a perfect illustration of how we can use what are called the cursing psalms or the imprecatory. Uh, when you face a situation where there is a reason for complaint, either it's you're the reason for complaint or someone else is the reason for complaint as our sister here, not you, but you're, you know what I mean or something that God is doing or not doing, when we take that to him and ask him to hold himself accountable to his own promises, that's an act of praise. When you trust God enough, when you have the view of God that's solid enough that you can actually hold him accountable to exactly what he's promised, that is an act of praise. If you promise something to your children, and then didn't deliver. What do you want your child to do? Give you a pass or hold you accountable? Would that not be what you want for your child to do? Is that not an indication that your child is growing in maturity and that they treat you as someone respectable and responsible and who should keep their promises? Isn't that what you'd want? This is what God wants. He's made promises. He's committed himself. And specifically to the Israelites, he's committed themselves, himself to bless them in response to their obedience. If they do not experience blessing and there's no other cause for it that they can identify, then it's the most praiseworthy thing that they can do to go to him and ask him what's going on. So even a complaint to God about God can be a form of praise. Do you see what I mean? Does that make sense? You're trusting God to do what you can't do. It's a form of praise. There are other kinds of psalms that don't seem happy clappy, but they're still praises, like the wisdom psalms, like Psalm 1, where really the purpose of that psalm is to get you to be a righteous person. Well, how is that a praise to God? 
Because the, the psalm, like Psalm 1 or Psalm 119, that celebrate wisdom as the goal, righteousness as the goal toward which you should strive, is really a praise of the one who designed righteousness to be a source of blessing. You're praising God by praising the wisdom that God has put in place. You're praising God by praising the way he designed the universe to operate. You're praising God because God designed it so that the wicked are like chaff, that the wind blows away. God designed it so that the righteous are like a tree planted by the streams of water that brings forth fruit in its season, the leaves don't wither, whatever he does prospers. That's a statement that's a praise to God. You designed this this way. And so when I celebrate wisdom, I celebrate the God of wisdom. Does that make sense? There are some of the psalms that have to do with uh, the king, the earthly king. I'll get to those in a minute, but let's come back to these cursing psalms. I'll show you what I mean. Um, probably the, the one we find particularly offensive, most offensive, although it's not the only example, is in uh, Psalm 137. This is the, the trophy case of, trophy example of imprecatory or cursing psalms. Especially when you go to verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Have you preached on that one, Pastor John? <laughs> there are 18 psalms that contain some element of cursing. There are three that are most uh, saturated with it. They'd be Psalm 35, Psalm 69, and Psalm 109. And of course, the question is, what do we do with them as, as New Testament believers? Do we just leave them go and ignore them and act like they're not there? Then haven't we divided the Bible into what's inspired and what isn't? That doesn't seem like a good solution to me. I was in a church one time for a funeral, and I was paging through the, they had a, a book of liturgy, and I was paging through the book of liturgy, and I, I noticed that they included the Psalms in the back of the book of liturgy, which I thought was a good thing. Um, but then I noticed that there, were, there was an asterisk and then there was clearly a space and clearly stuff that had been taken out of that psalm. And so I asked the pastor, what's going on? And he said, well, that's the stuff that isn't appropriate for worship. We took that out. Well, there's an answer. That's what you do with these cursing psalms. You just take them out. I don't think that's a good answer. I don't like that. Well, we say, well, that's the Old Testament believer. We're New Testament believers. Jesus told us to turn the other cheek. Well, there's stuff in the New Testament that sounds kind of similar to the Old Testament. Remember that scene in Revelation where the souls are under the altar, the martyrs of those under the altar? They sound a lot like the psalmist here. How long, O Lord, before you avenge us? What's the difference? It's the same spirit. So it's not an Old Testament versus New Testament thing. We can't get rid of it that easily. So what do we do with these things? Well, I think there are several things to, to realize. One is that there's not a lot of this cursing material. It's not like the whole book of Psalms is filled with this. And secondly, we are intended to understand the language as hyperbole. What is hyperbole? 
literary exaggeration, which is different than what you do when you go fishing. That's lying. Literary exaggeration is when you write something and you know it's not the, the letter of the truth, and your audience knows it's not the letter of the truth, but sometimes it works well with communication. So, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse is a hyperbole. Do not feed me a horse. The language here is not meant to be taken in full literalness. It's meant to be taken as hyperbole. They're literary expressions. They are conditional. Which is to say, if the enemy continues to act like the enemy, this is what I want to happen to them. But if that enemy should change his or her mind, I don't want this to happen to them. And we know this to be true because we see examples of it. I'll give you just Jeremiah 18, 7 to 10. You can look it up on your own. But there's a clear example that when God makes these kind of pronouncements or when the psalmist makes these kinds of requests, it is conditional. If they don't change their course of action, that's what I want to happen to them. Next, this is not private vengeance. This is not the same thing as you saying that person backed into my car and I want this to happen to them. It's not. Private vengeance is forbidden in the Old Testament. Not just in the New. It's forbidden in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 18, Exodus 23, 4 and 5, Deuteronomy 32, 35. That's Old Testament prohibiting private vengeance. So in other words, the psalmist's request is not that he individually be vindicated. It's something bigger than that. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand. Do you know that's actually a step in the direction of mercy? We call that the law of the tooth, lex talionis. And it's the trophy example that non-believers will use to say that the Old Testament is a bloody book. But do you know when you read the Old Testament in its historical context, that law of the tooth, the lex talionis, is actually God moving his people one step in the direction of mercy beyond the rest of their contemporaries. Do you know what the law was there? It depends on who you are. Stand up. Come here. This is... This is a wealthy landowner. Yeah. And I'm a lowly servant. If I do something to you, what happens to me is not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, because that would treat us as equals. In ancient Babylonian law, and you can look this up in the Code of Hammurabi, what happens to me depends on his social status. So if I had another servant here, it would be eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But if I poke out his eye, off with my head. Do you see what the law of the tooth does? You see what the it makes us equal. Thanks. Did you put your hand right there? I'm warm. <laughs> <laughs> so far from being bloodthirsty, it's not bloodthirsty at all. God, you heard me say this before. God's like a kindergarten teacher in the Old Testament. He's got to start with people where they are and take them where he wants them to be. And so what he does is he goes to a culture that is, is, is rife with violence, and it's not equal violence, it's hierarchical, depending on your social status, and he introduces a whole new ethic for his people. Now, it's just kindergarten, but his goal is to get them to the place where they would understand, turn the other cheek. 
You can't get them there right away. That would be incomprehensible. But like a kindergarten teacher, he starts them in the right direction, and the goal is turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. It's school. And the law of the tooth is, is the first step in kindergarten. Good question. A lot of these, a lot of these uh, psalms, these cursing psalms, come from David, or at least they're associated with David. Isn't that interesting? Because of all the people in the Old Testament that you'd want as an enemy, David would be first on the list, right? Well, look how he treated Saul. Here's his enemy, going to the bathroom in the cave. That's the whole thing about uncovering his feet. He's going to the, Saul's going to the bathroom. He's sitting there going to the bathroom, number two, in the back of the cave. And there's David behind him in the dark recesses of the cave, and he has his opportunity to slit this man's throat. Do you know what that would have done for David? He could have gone home. He could have been king. He'd already been promised that he was going to be king. Here is his chance. And all he does is he cuts a little part of Saul's robe as a way of saying, I could have killed you and I didn't. Won't you lighten up? Wouldn't you want that as your enemy? Now, whatever you do with these cursing psalms, if they're in any way associated with David, let's read them in light of David's life. Read them in light of what David did with his enemies. It's going to soften them for sure. Notice that these are public expressions. What did I say the Psalms was? It's, it's, a, it's a hymn book. This is not you getting out your private vengeance. We've already said that. Neither is this you privately complaining to God. This is what we do in public. This is why your experience with the imprecatory Psalms, I think, is so informative. Because what you, what you experienced is the same thing that my, my church experienced. When we started going through the Psalms and reading a Psalm, we didn't we even preaching from them. We were just reading them. And one of the comments that was made was how this helped them to deal with the kind of things that they were having to deal with. People who were, who were doing things to them behind their back. And they, they had no recourse, no way of correcting that. But somehow the language of the psalmist here, this public expression of the psalmist, allowed them to understand that there is a God who's in charge. And George doesn't need to figure out how to get vengeance on this person at work. It's a public expression which lifts this problem, known to all of us in some fashion, up to the God who can do something about it. And it changed the way you understand this kind of personal slight. The main concern of these cursings is not revenge, it's justice. This is huge. This is huge. God is not interested in avenging you, but he's passionately committed to a world of justice. What you'll notice if you study these curses is that over and over and over, the theme is, do to them what they have done to us. Quid pro quo is the Latin expression. Do to them whatever they did to us, you do to them as well. There's justice there. You say, that's not mercy. I didn't say mercy. I said, it's justice. That's what the psalmist is asking for. Can I say one more thing? I think that this actually, the cursing psalms, the Bible would be incomplete without the cursing psalms. So I told you that story about the church that took, the, took these passages out. 
I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum. Not only should these passages be included, they must be included. Because the problem that's being addressed by these cursing psalms is that there is an enemy, not of the psalmist, but to Yahweh. The problem here is not that somebody has done something to the psalmist. The problem is, now listen carefully, that by doing something to the psalmist, they have done something to Yahweh. And the cursing psalms are not a matter of the psalmist saying, get vengeance for me. They are saying to God, you said you would avenge yourself, do it. That's the problem. The problem is they are anti-Yahweh. Look at Psalm May those who hope, this is verse 6, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord Almighty, O Adonai, Yahweh Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel, for I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. The assumption in all of these cursing psalms is that I have been living the way you've told me to live. I've been doing things the way you've told me to do them. The result has not been what you told me would happen. There are individuals who are preventing you from accomplishing your goal, from preventing you from fulfilling your promise. The imprecatory, the cursing psalms are the psalmist asking God to keep his promise. How can they not be prayed? It's not like God can say, oh, well, I didn't really mean that. that that's problematic. Would you agree <laughs> for God to say, well, I said it, but I don't really mean it? Sorry? I would say without justice, there's no hope. I would agree with you 100%. Who wants to live in a world that's, where there's no justice? Listen, the... Listen to me carefully. It's another tweetable expression. The inability to be angry at sin is no virtue. The inability, the incapacity to be angry at sin is not a virtue. In this day of tolerance, we have come to believe that we should ignore sin. And if we ignore it or not, that's our business. We have to answer to God for that. But you must not consider that a virtue. Look at me. I can ignore sin. That's no virtue. That's a weakness. That's like having, like having the tendon cut in your arm. But the capacity to be indignant at sin and desirous that God would provide vindication to those who've been harmed by sin. The capacity to be indignant at those who have caused harm through their sin is a virtue. But it's one that's very difficult to exercise. 
Righteous indignation is righteous. It's just hard to be righteously indignant without falling into the trap of sin. Does this make sense? This is what we're talking about here with these curses. It's righteous indignation. And somehow the psalmist found a way to be righteously indignant without self-centered indignant. And I would suggest that our aspiration in this case ought to be not ignoring righteous indignation, but figuring out how to be righteously indignant in a non-self-serving way. Let's aim for that. Now, you may not agree with me on that. There's much more intelligent people. C.S. Lewis would not agree with me. If you read C.S. Lewis's book on the Psalms, it's called Reflections on the Psalms. He takes a different approach to these Psalms than I do. And I have so much respect for C.S. Lewis, it's caused me pause. But in this case, I have to demure. I think I'm right and he's wrong. Yes, he is dead, so. <laughs> but I will be too at some point. I think the problem, how can we be righteously indignant without being judgmental? The problem with judgment is not judgmentalism. The problem with judgment is identifying a criteria for judgment that's of our own making or holding someone else accountable to the standard of judgment to which we do not hold ourselves accountable. Those would be the two problems that we have to face with judgmentalism. We've either created our own criteria or we've refused to subject ourselves to God's criteria. But if we are subjecting ourselves to the same criteria as we're subjecting others to, then judgment is the only appropriate response. Now, how you manifest that judgment is another issue. And I don't mean to be uh, simplistic here. Righteous indignation has never been more difficult to exercise. Never. So if we're going to be a, a church and I mean that broadly, if we're going to be a church that knows how to be righteously indignant, we're going to have to be a lot more careful about it, lest we be completely misunderstood. I mean, who of us doesn't cringe at that Baptist church somewhere, Westboro Baptist? Who of us doesn't cringe when they're protesting at the funeral for a gay soldier and, and you know, with their signs condemning homosexuality? Who, I mean, I'm not proud of that. And we need to understand that the culture in which we find ourselves assumes, assumes that we're all the same as Westboro Baptist. So we got to figure out a way to be righteously indignant, don't let that tendon be cut, but to express it in a way that distinguishes us from the kind of blind judgmentalism of a Westboro Baptist. And I am not here to tell you that's an easy thing to do, but I do believe that's the path forward. And I can't think of a better illustration than what I'm talking about than the early church in the book of Revelation. If you want to know how to live in Canada in the 21st century, look at how they lived in the first century Roman world in Asia Minor. Those first three chapters in Revelation, those are, those are Christians who have, who have come under Roman authority but instead of saying Caesar is Lord, they say Jesus is Lord. I, I don't think, I think we're entering into an age where we're going to be able to understand the book of Revelation finally. Because for the first time, first time, the church in the West will understand what it means to be living in that kind of an environment. So, you ready for that? 
Ready or not, here it comes. For by the same standard that you judge others, you yourselves will be judged. Let's finish that. If a person, if you want to simplify the definition of judgment, identifying a person by the term that God uses for that person in the way in a way that that person would understand the judgment, the, the, the term, yeah, we can do that. Sorry? It's ultimately the Holy Spirit's job to bring judgment. He, he will reprove and correct and bring people into judgment. Does the Holy Spirit sometimes use individuals? Yes. But I, here, here, here's where my, my communication theory, I was a communications major in college, and I only remember this one thing. <laughs> it was a very expensive lesson <laughs> for my parents to pay. You haven't communicated simply by saying something. Communication is a two-way process, and it's my responsibility as the communicator to communicate the message in a way that you will understand it. This is where judgment becomes tricky. This is where calling names becomes tricky. It's because our responsibility is not merely to identify the name, the label that fits best with that person and apply it. Because if that is heard differently than we intended, we haven't communicated. We've spoken, but we haven't communicated. And this is where I'm saying, this is where our challenge is. If we live in a culture where everybody associates us with Westboro Baptist, that's where they're starting from. So if I'm communicating, okay, I'm communicating with somebody that doesn't speak English. We don't speak the same language. I can't just say the word in English and assume my job is done. But we understand that when it comes to different languages, but we have to understand that there's a cultural language too. And, and our responsibility is to communicate the truth in a language that will be understood so that in the end, that person will hear what we hope that they heard. And until we have done everything we can do to make sure that happens, even to the point of being quiet until we can figure it out, we haven't communicated. Does that make sense? I mean, do you see what I mean anyway? But you're not satisfied. I can tell. Yes, and I think you're probably not alone in being raised to think that you're not to be the judge of other people. And there's a, there's a world of truth to that. We don't... With all, with all due respect, I think that there's a way of saying that. I'm not saying that you mean it this way, but there is a way of saying, I don't want to be judged. That is... So you don't want to be judged by other people. Yes. Okay. So that, that's a healthier way of understanding it. You don't want to be judged by other people. You don't want other people 
getting in your business. You don't intend to get in other people's. I think there's a lot of health to that. I think there's a lot of value and wisdom in that. I do think you would agree that there are instances where God may lay on our heart a certain responsibility to a certain person and to not take some responsibility and express an opinion, which is another word for judgment, um, would be to be disobedient. So, you mean, I don't know if you have children, but certainly you've exercised that responsibility many times because you have a responsibility for that person. And, and responsibilities can either be long-term, based on relationships, like children, or they can be temporary, ad hoc. And, and I think God has the right to utilize us to exercise that role. Do not hear me say that what I want Moncton Wesleyan to do is take up some kind of righteous indignation cause and go out and start yelling at people in Moncton. I'm saying the, I'm saying the opposite. Don't do that. Unless you have done the hard work of figuring out, am I living by the standards that God has laid out for me to live? Because if I'm not living that way, I have no right to say anything to anybody else. But that's not an excuse to say, hey, I'm not going to live up to those standards, so I'm not going to say anybody else should live up to those standards. You, you see why that's a problematic approach, right? It's letting everybody off the hook. That's no virtue. I am saying we've never been in a day when righteous indignation has been easier. So if God calls you to express righteous indignation, you have the responsibility of ensuring that you will be heard in a way that would be honoring to God and beneficial to that person. They do not have the responsibility to hear you. You have the responsibility to phrase it in such a way that you will be heard. And if you can't do that, you don't know how to do that yet, probably best that you just keep your mouth shut until you figure that out. You can absolutely do more harm than good. You just confirm their suspicions. Ah, another Westboro Baptist. Yeah, I got one question back here and I'll come up to you. Henry? Yes. The one, the one never appears without the other, too. So it, it's like a team. I don't want to get... I'm not a heretic. Three and one, I believe that. But it's like, in some ways, a team of workers that all we travel, travel together, but one is assigned the responsibility of certain tasks. And so the spirit is the, is the one that's assigned the responsibility to work with individual believers, representing Jesus to that individual believer, the words of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, to produce that life of Jesus. It's like the spirit's job to do that with us. And it would be the spirit who would be the one who would be prompting us to respond to a particular situation with a statement a corrective statement, call it judgment if you want to, that would reflect the gospel of Christ and the character of God. You see how all, all Trinity comes in the same work van. But one of them has a set of skills or an assignment. 
Quickly, let's move on. Oh, yes, question. Comment. I love that. Uh, for those of you who couldn't hear all that, the idea that whatever we say, righteous indignation is redemptive. It's corrective. There's a hope to it. And if you can't give the hope, then don't give the other. I, I mean, that last part was me, not you. But I, I love that point. Yeah. Is it okay if we move on? I want to make sure we cover. We've got about uh, 15 minutes or so. Go on to the next slide, if you would, Shane. And the next one. Can we find Jesus in the Psalms? And you might think that's an abrupt turn in the road. But you notice that the royal Psalms, there's lots of Psalms. They're not happy, clappy Psalms. They're Psalms about the king. There's even a Psalm, Psalm 45, which is a Psalm that was written to be sung at the wedding of the king. I love this psalm because it's the only instance that I know about where the bride is less important than the groom. I mean, face it, right? Most weddings, the, the role of the groom could be played by a cardboard cutout and nobody would know the difference. But in this psalm, the psalmist actually says to the bride, you should consider yourself lucky to be marrying this guy. Isn't that great? But what does that have to do with God? How is that praises? Well, the simple answer is, anytime you praise something that God has put in place for the good of his people, you're praising God. And this is why you can praise the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because God chose the city of Jerusalem. This is why you can praise the temple. Why? It's just a building. No, it's where God chose to make his name dwell. This is why you can praise the earthly king, even sing a song about his wedding. Why? Because the earthly king exists as God's representative on earth. No worries, Ty. So, that's my signal that I've got to wind it up here. I think. So, if I put my toothbrush up on eBay, how many bids do you think I'll get for my toothbrush? I put Bono's toothbrush on, you, on eBay. I think I might get a little bit of money for that. Why? Well, he's famous and I'm not. So an object that's of equal value to another object becomes more valuable based on its association with and choice of God. And that's what we have when we talk about these things like the king, the earthly king. He's there to represent God. Now, that raises the question about these passages that are royal psalms, psalms that are associated with the king. Lots of people have looked at these psalms, like Psalm 2, for example. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they say, that's a messianic psalm. That's about Jesus. The Lord 
says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Does that not sound like Jesus? Book of Hebrews? And then there are all those places where the term Messiah appears. I mean, can't get much clearer than that, right? And then there are all those places where the Son of Man, the phrase Son of Man appears in the Psalms. Obviously, that was Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels. Son of Man. Clearly a reference to Jesus in the Psalms. So yes, you can find Jesus in the Psalms, but only in certain Psalms. And then there's another group of people saying, oh, time out, time out, time out. Jesus isn't in the Psalms. Jesus wasn't born for another couple centuries after that, several centuries after that. His name doesn't appear. The cross doesn't appear. Mary doesn't appear. How can you say that Jesus is in the Psalms? That's anachronistic. So yes, Jesus appears in certain Psalms. That's the answer that we've generally been given. And no, Jesus, you know, they're written about the earthly king. My answer is neither is true. Can you find Jesus in the Psalms? The answer is yes, in every single Psalm. In every Psalm. We don't need to be limiting ourselves to phrases like son of man and references to the earthly king. Jesus said to the disciples in Luke 24, the whole Old Testament is about me. He didn't mean that you can find my name in every chapter. He didn't mean you can find my life represented in detail in every chapter. He did mean that I, in Christ, I represent the culmination of God's redemptive plan. God's intent to reconcile humanity back to himself, to reconcile humanity to each other, to reconcile humanity to humanity, to reconcile humanity to the natural world. That's what salvation is. It isn't just you and me getting to heaven. Salvation, God's redemptive plan, is restoring the broken relationships. The whole Old Testament is about God's intent to restore those four broken relationships, and Jesus represents the culminating moment when that happens. So that everything that you find in the Old Testament, or for our purposes, the Psalms in particular, everything that has anything to do with God seeking to bring about reconciliation with his people, or God's people reconciled with others, or God's people reconciled with themselves, or God's people reconciled with their world. Anytime you find anything in the Old Testament that has anything to do with that, it has something to do with Jesus. Does this not make sense? So yes, we can read in the Old Testament and ask, what does this have to do with Jesus? It has a primary reference, perhaps, to the earthly king. Sure, that's who God is talking about specifically, but by talking about the earthly king, is God not pointing ahead to Jesus, who is the king of kings? I'll say it another way. If God chose to designate an individual who would represent him to the people and exercise leadership to the people, is it not appropriate to see that as somehow suggestive to what God would do in Christ? Nod your head if that makes sense. If God chose to make his name reside at a particular street address in Jerusalem, are we that far off to see some connection between God inhabiting his temple 
and God inhabiting the person of Christ? If, if God chose to make his presence known through his law, that he hides in the heart of his people, which guides their behavior, are we so far off that we would see the law as in some sense an anticipation of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ taking up residence in our lives? See, once we get the idea that the whole Old Testament is the story of God working to bring reconciliation, then we can look back from the vantage point of the New Testament to see how God was preparing his people for the person of Christ. So he's there, everywhere, in the law, in Leviticus of all places, but certainly in the Psalms. Are we so far off to read, Yahweh is my shepherd, and understand in a way that the Old Testament believer could never have even begun to comprehend that God actually intended to send his son to be the good shepherd. He's there, he's there in every psalm. And I think we should look for him there. One last uh, answer to this question of what is the psalms. It's an opportunity for you to hear from God, for you, singular, to hear from God, and for you, plural, to hear from God. You heard me say this before, that God intends to speak through this book to people. Just as God does not want to be known as an object, he does not want his book to be known merely as an object. We call that a Pharisee. The intellectual knowledge that you have of the word of God is worse than useless if it is not married to a relationship with the God of the Bible. I didn't come, I didn't come here to tell you more about the Bible. I came here to tell you more about the Bible so that you would learn to hear God's voice through the Bible. And if I didn't do that last part, you had no business inviting me. The Psalms are a beautiful way to hear from God. I want to mention one way in, in particular which the church has used for millennia to hear from God through the Psalms, and that's by praying the Psalms. I don't know how many of you know of the Benedictine order in the Roman Catholic Church, but uh, St. Benedict wrote um, a rule for the Benedictines when he started that order of monks. And central to the Benedictine order was the recitation of the Psalms, the praying of the Psalms. All 150 Psalms every week. And so the Benedictine monks every week would pray all 150 Psalms. He didn't care the order in which you did it as long as you did all 150 Psalms. He says, and you could almost see him shaking his head with some chagrin. He said, we're kind of embarrassed, I'm paraphrasing now, he said, kind of embarrassed because in the ancient church, they used to do all 150 Psalms in a day. We're only taking a week to do it. So there's a long tradition of praying the Psalms. Some of you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know him better for um, his book on the cost of discipleship, perhaps. But he wrote another book called Life Together, which is a, a, basically the curriculum that he used in a little underground seminary that he conducted uh, with the Confessing Church during Hitler's regime. And in that little book, he talks about the Psalms and praying the Psalms. And he says, the Psalter is the great school of prayer few pages later, the more deeply we grow into the Psalms and the more often we pray them as our own, the more simple and rich will our prayer become. So I would encourage you 
to at least try this practice of praying the Psalms. And I've given you up there several things I think that will do for us. It challenges us to be honest. You read these Psalms and you read the honesty in these Psalms, it challenges us to have that same honesty. It, it provides a point of identification. One early church father, Athanasius, described them as a mirror. We, we've seen that, right? Sometimes we look in that, in that mirror and we see ourselves as the psalmist struggling with the enemy. And sometimes we look in the mirror and see ourselves as the enemy. They provide an opportunity for catharsis. To see that the Bible actually contains this deep emotion, this feeling of being betrayed, can only be cathartic to the person who's known betrayal. If you've known what it means, what it feels like to have someone close to you do something to you that's unspeakable, then one of the most helpful things you can do is to turn to that passage in the Psalms where the psalmist has felt the very same thing and understand that God understands. And not just understands, provides healing, just as the psalmist discovered healing in the midst of that hurt. And not just healing, but instruction. What do I do now? And not just instruction, but correction. Sometimes we are the enemy. and We need to realize what our actions are doing to the innocent. And it teaches us how to praise God. Not just happy, clappy praise either. So let me make some suggestions. One more slide, please. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't include the suggestions. I thought I did. Slide 27, did I not include the suggestions? While he's looking for that, I may not have, my mistake. Here, here are my suggestions. I'll send these to you if you want me to. Begin with the assumption that God wants to speak to you today. When you open the Bible, you open it with this prayer. God, speak to me today. Because he wants to. Do your Bible study. Your pastor has given you a great gift in learning how to study the Bible. Do it. Read, reread it, reread it again. Get clarity on what the text is saying. Pay attention to the parallelism and the other stuff. Focus on the psalmist's relationship with God. And then read it as a prayer. Let the psalmist's words be your words. Pray the psalmist's words. Make that your prayer. It's going to feel a little awkward because it's not exactly your circumstances. Pray it anyway. Say those words back to God. It's like a script. You say, well, I don't know what to pray. You got a script, 150 of them. And listen. Even as you're talking, listen. I bet you will hear something that God wants to say to you. Well, how do I know which psalm to pick? I don't care. Pick any of them. God is not subject to whatever passage of the Bible you happen to open that day. Isn't that liberating? You don't have to guess where he wants you to read that day. Just open the Bible to the place where you were last time and start from where you ended. He'll talk to you. It may take a little while to cultivate the listening ear. But when you start to realize that you can hear from God specific to your circumstances. You bring your life to the passage and you take from the passage what God wants to say to you and you just watch how those two fit together and you say, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I just listened and he did that. 
This is what the Psalms can do for us. I'd say write down what you discover. I've lost so many great insights I wish I had back, but I wasn't writing them down. I write down everything now. In fact, I, my journal every day, my prayer every day, is, is, is this kind of thing, not always with the Psalms, but it's just filled with prayers. And it's amazing to me how specific those prayers became, not because I invested what I thought God wanted me to say, but because I heard from him. But keeping the written record is great. And then move on to conversation about other specific prayer concerns. I'm guessing this will help our prayer lives. I want to leave you with uh, three other things here. One is a resource that I mentioned, this Baker Dictionary of the Bible. And if you get the slides, you will get that Amazon site. I would have had uh, miracles here, but they weren't able to come um, to sell the books themselves. But uh, you can get this on Amazon.ca. Baker Dictionary of the Bible, great at the background stuff. And then uh, two commentaries, one, one of which is very good, and the other is, I, is mine that I feel an obligation to share with you. Um, but that's a commentary that I wrote for the Wesleyan Church, uh, which is available on Amazon. And then one that I have found tremendously helpful and very accessible. It's not highfalutin, but it is just God-anointed, and that's by Derek Kidner. And I've given you that information, too. There's obviously 73 to 150. And those, uh, those URLs are how you get that book. And then the last slide is just um, my email and uh, questions. We are, we are at 12.01, so I've used up all my time. I'd hoped to have a little time for questions, but we did take a few questions uh, at the break. So um, I'm happy to answer whatever questions you have, but I feel a certain responsibility to turn this back over to Pastor Joel. Thank you. Yeah.